We are in our series, continuing in our series in Nehemiah. Nehemiah, this morning, Nehemiah 6, starting at verse 1. Now it happened when Sambalid, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built, rebuilt the wall, that is Nehemiah, I had rebuilt the wall, and that there were no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung the doors in the gates. Beginning here in verse 1, Nehemiah's principal enemies, we've met them before, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, and some sympathetic others were scheming together against Nehemiah in order to stop him and his men from finishing this wall around Jerusalem. Um, as we just read, construction was almost completed. And so one more time, these men came in an effort to stop this project. Although this happened in the Old Testament, opposition to God's people and God's projects has continued into New Testament times. That is the reason the Christian journey has never been a piece of cake. There was a song that commented on that spiritual struggle. It said in part, It's a battlefield, brother, not a recreation room. It's a fight and not a game. And it is that. Author G.K. Chesterton made this statement. Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. It has been found difficult and not tried. Being a Christian can be a tough, tough thing. And remember this, those that are most blessed are also the most oppressed. Those that are most blessed are also the most oppressed. God had blessed Nehemiah against all odds. God had enabled him and his men to re-erect that Jerusalem wall and those gates in less than two months total time. That was amazing. That wall went from just a pile of debris and rubble to at this juncture in verse 1, it was almost finished. Nehemiah and his men had been blessed. And now he and his men were about to be oppressed some more. One more time. Please notice Satan's unique timing. It was more than just a coincidence that Satan tried to interfere at this particular stage in the construction. Satan is an intelligent strategist. Satan's aggression against Nehemiah came at a critical and crucial point. This was the most significant construction project those Jewish people had seen in generations, and it was almost finished. According to the end of verse 1, all that Nehemiah had left to do was to insert the doors in the gates. That meant that this building project was almost finished. Nehemiah had almost completed the job he was assigned to do. And it was at this juncture, this juncture near the end of that project, that his enemies came one more time to harass him. There's a basic biblical principle found here. That principle is this. Satanic aggression intensifies if Satan realizes he has just a short time left to interfere in what God is doing. One more time. 
Satanic aggression intensifies if Satan realizes he has just a short time left to interfere in what God is doing. I want us to turn to Revelation 12. This is going to be an enormous parenthesis in this message, but it's so important that we understand this principle we just cited. Revelation 12. In a chronological sense, this particular passage in Revelation we're about to read is located at the midpoint of the tribulation period. For those that are newer to eschatology, eschatology is the doctrine of last things. Eschatology is the doctrine of the end times. It is entirely prophetical and futuristic, and there is a chart, an eschatological chart, on the note sheet. So you should have that. The tribulation period, notice, is a seven-year, 84-month-long to be exact, seven-year prophetical period on the earth that probably most evangelicals believe comes after the rapture. Now, there are some good people that disagree on the timing of the rapture. Some people believe the rapture happens at the middle part of the tribulation period. Um, that's called the mid-tribulation rapture position. Some people believe the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation period, meaning at the end of that 84-month-long period. That's called the post-tribulation rapture position. And those are legitimate options and positions on the timing of the rapture. But the position I hold to, and you know I've never been wrong, the position I hold to is called the pre-tribulation rapture position, meaning the rapture occurs pre, prior to, meaning before the tribulation period actually begins, just as on this chart. The word rapture describes Jesus descending from heaven, stopping in the atmosphere above the earth, and then in a microsecond, catching Christians up from off the earth to meet him in the atmosphere, and then all of them together ascend into heaven. That means in an instant, at minimum, hundreds of millions, if not more than a billion, people vanish into thin air. That is the rapture. And then after that rapture, there's going to be this seven-year tribulation period. That period is also called Daniel's 70th prophetical week, meaning the final week, the last week of Daniel's 70 prophetical weeks that we studied in our series through the book of Daniel. And that message is online. It's going to be an intense time of persecution and tribulation on the earth. During that tribulation period, God is going to judge the earth and the earth's inhabitants. So this particular passage from Revelation 12 we're about to read uh, takes place at the midpoint of that 84-month tribulation period. In fact, you could draw a dotted line right down the middle of the tribulation period on that chart. This is where all this happens Revelation 12, starting at verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. 
Michael is an archangel. He is actually the only angel in Scripture that is actually called an archangel. There could be other archangels, but Michael is the only angel mentioned as an archangel. Catholicism teaches that an angel named Raphael is also called an archangel. Raphael is not mentioned in our biblical canon. Raphael, though, is mentioned in the apocryphal book, Tobit. Tobit. The word apocrypha means hidden, and the apocrypha consisted of books recorded during the intertestamental period. The intertestamental period was the four centuries between the Old Testament and New Testament. Some of those apocryphal books are including in Catholic Bibles. And Raphael's mentioned in Tobet, one of those books. Protestants and evangelicals have never accepted those apocryphal books as part of the biblical canon, so we don't necessarily believe there is an archangel named Raphael. Besides, I was under the impression Raphael was one of the four teenage mutant ninja turtles. See, I'm culturally astute. Supposedly, the four turtle brothers are trained in ninjutsu and together fight evil in New York City. And those brothers are Leonardo, Raphael, Michelangelo, and Donatello. Uh, Raphael's second from the left. So we know there is a teenage mutant ninja turtle named Raphael, but we're not so sure there's an archangel named Raphael. Could be, but we just aren't sure. Remember that angels are created beings, and the original angel population is a permanent, unchangeable number. At some point in the eternal past, God created a specific number of angels. We don't know what that number is. We assume it's an extremely large number, but we don't know what that precise number is. But we do know whatever it is, that original number of angels created has never changed. That original angelic number has never been added to and has never been subtracted from. There has never been angelic procreation. There are no mother, father, children, and grandchildren angels. No angels are born and no angels ever die. The angel population is a permanent number because angels are indestructible, immortal beings. There could be billions of angels. No one knows. We do know this. We do know that two-thirds of those original angels have remained faithful to God from the beginning. We call those angels faithful angels. We also know that one-third, the remaining one-third of those original angels, were unfaithful. Those angels were insubordinate and assisted Satan in his initial rebellion against God. Satan was also a created being, And he was created, not an archangel, but an exalted angel named Lucifer. He was full of pride. He wanted to supersede God and sit on his throne as the ultimate ruler of this universe. So Lucifer and his angels, those that cooperated, started an insurrection against God. God couldn't permit that to happen, so he removed 
don't miss this, removed Lucifer's permanent residence from heaven, and he became known as Satan from that point on. In addition, those rebellious angels that assisted Lucifer uh, were also removed from heaven and are now considered fallen angels. So two-thirds of the angels are faithful angels. One-third are fallen or unfaithful angels. Michael is in charge of all the faithful angels. And the dragon, and according to verse 9, the dragon is another name for Satan. He's in charge of all of the fallen and unfaithful angels. So according to verse 7, there's going to be, at the midpoint of the tribulation period on earth, there's going to be this prophetic, futuristic, cosmic conflict in heaven. Michael and his faithful angelic forces will fight against the dragon, who is Satan, and his unfaithful fallen angelic forces. Remember that an unfaithful angel, a fallen angel, is the same as a demon. A fallen angel is a demonic being. And there could be millions of demons contingent on the number of fallen and unfaithful angels. Remember, though, that two-thirds of the angel population are faithful angels. So for each unfaithful fallen demonic angel, there are two more faithful angels. So Michael still has the advantage, and we should be grateful for that. So there's this battle in heaven. Michael and his faithful angels are fighting against Satan and his unfaithful fallen angels. And according to this next verse, Satan's forces lose that battle. Verse 8, but they they, meaning Satan and his fallen angels, did not prevail. Meaning Satan and his forces aren't victorious, nor was there a place, meaning a residence, found for them in heaven any longer. Uh, that means at that point in time, Satan and his demonic angels are permanently removed from heaven. Verse 9. So the great dragon, Satan, was cast out. That serpent of old, called the devil, and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth, and his angels, those fallen, unfaithful angels, those demon beings, were cast out with him. After losing this cosmic battle, Satan and his demonic forces are removed from heaven on a permanent basis, from that point on, the evil, those evil beings are not permitted in heaven, period. Now that is a serious change from now. Satan hasn't been a permanent resident in heaven since his attempted coup at some point in the eternal past. But he has been, since then, permitted limited access to heaven. He has been permitted visitation privileges into heaven. And Satan has taken advantage of those um, uh, privileges and he goes into heaven to God's throne. And he goes there to accuse us of committing sin. 
He goes there to accuse us to God of committing sin. He accuses us to God 24-7. Most of his time, it seems, is in heaven. Remember, God is omnipresent. God can be at all points in this universe at the same point in time. But God is the only being that's omnipresent. Satan is not omnipresent. He can only be at one location at any point in time, just as we are also not omnipresent. So most of his time right now is spent in heaven, accusing us to God of committing sin. The good part is that according to 1 John 2, verse 1, Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is there meaning he is our advocate, our legal counsel. He is essentially our defense attorney, and he is there to defend us against Satan's accusation. And so Satan has never won a single case against us because we're forgiven. But at the midpoint of the tribulation period, and after losing this battle, Satan is no longer permitted in heaven to do that. That's it from that moment on. No more accusing us before God. Satan and his demonic angels are cast down onto the earth. Verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice, and this is John, the author of Revelation, the apostle John. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren. And who is our accuser? Satan, who accused them before our God. How often? Day and night. He has been cast down. At this moment, though, right now, this morning, Satan still has access into heaven. And he still goes there to tattle on us. He's there to accuse us of committing sins. He wants God to be aware of our continued unholiness. But at this futuristic point in time, in the middle of the tribulation period, after losing this battle, Satan is removed from heaven forever. All of that is fantastic for those that are in heaven because it means no more satanic harassment, no more accusations brought against Christians. Verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. There should be rejoicing in heaven at this juncture, because Satan no longer has access into heaven. But that isn't a good thing for those who are left here on this earth during the second half of the tribulation period. Good for heaven, not so good for earth. Notice the word woe. Woe is a warning about troubles to come. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. Why would God warn those on the earth that more trouble is on the forecast? Notice, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath. Satan has just been defeated. He has just been expelled from heaven. He is ticked off. He is so full of intense anger. Why would Satan be so upset? Read on. Because he knows that he has a short time. Satan is expelled from heaven. 
He is relegated to earth, and he's upset. He's full of anger because he knows that he has a short time. The seven-year tribulation period is going to be analogous to hell on earth. It is divided into two halves. Each of those halves consists of 42 months each in length. 42 months or three and a half years each in length. It's interesting that the second half of the tribulation period is called the great tribulation because as severe as the first half is, the second half is even more severe in judgment. Question, and why would the tribulation period's second half be so much more intense, be so much more horrific than the first half? The reason is because during the second half, Satan knows and Satan understands he has just a short time left to interfere. And so he applies more pressure. And he's able to be more focused on earth since he doesn't have to divide his time between earth and heaven as he does now. Verse 12, one more time. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. At the actual end of the tribulation period, meaning at the conclusion of that 84-month tribulation time, notice on the chart, Jesus descends from heaven and actually returns to the earth. That's called his revelation because he reveals himself in a public sense to the inhabitants of the earth. He returns to the earth and those of us that have been in heaven join him in returning to earth. At that point, Satan is going to be incarcerated in the bottomless pit. One of those faithful angels binds Satan in chains and then deposits him into a bottomless pit. Now some theologians, this is conjecture on their part, some though believe that this pit is somewhere inside the actual center of the earth. It could be, according to them, a donut-shaped compartment uh, that rotates as the earth rotates so that it has no bottom. We aren't sure about that. We don't know where that bottomless pit is located for certain, but the idea is that in this bottomless pit, Satan would just fall and fall and fall and fall continuously for 1,000 years. During that same 1,000-year period, that Satan will be incarcerated inside that bottomless pit. At that same time, Jesus will establish his reign on the earth as the promised Messiah. And that initial stage to his reign is called the millennium because it consists of 1,000 years. Satan understands biblical eschatology better than us. And he knows that from the middle of the tribulation where he is expelled from heaven, he has just the second half of the tribulation period to interfere in the affairs of men before he is incarcerated in this bottomless pit. He's aware of what is scheduled to happen to him, and he understands he has just 42 months 
to cause trouble on earth. One reason Satan is so intense and upset and angered is because he understands he has just a short time left in which to operate. So he tries harder than ever to upset God's agenda. Consider some analogies. Consider a middle distance runner. A middle distance runner. A middle distances are from 1,500 meters to 5,000 meters. And athletes that run those middle distances will maintain a certain pace throughout the race and then accelerate through the final lap and the final turn and down the stretch to the tape. Uh, runners are sprinting at that point. That's called a kick. Because the closer the athlete gets to the finish line, his intensity increases because he realizes there's just a short time left to the races in, and he wants to get there first. Consider what a basketball team does. We're nearing the end of March Madness, and it is maddening. It's crazy. Uh, but consider that a basketball team, in the final minute and seconds of a close game, the coach often has his team uh, put on a full-court press. He does that so the opposing team can't score. The coach understands there's just a short time left in the game. Sometimes just a matter of seconds. So his team presses the opposing team. Consider what a fighter does in the 12th and final round of the fight if at that point his handlers and he understand he's losing on the scorecard. He could win the round, but it wouldn't be enough. If that's the case, he goes for a knockout because he understands there's just a short time left to fight. Athletes understand this principle. At the end of a race or at the end of a game, or at the end of a fight, there's just a short time left to do what needs to be done to be victorious. So athletes stretch and strain and press and fight to the end. Satan does the same thing. Satan operates with more intensity when he realizes he has just a short time left to interfere. People, this is so apparent. That's one reason Russia's President Putin is so upset. Mr. Putin is nothing more than Satan's stooge. He is an extension of Satan himself. The man is pure evil. His invasion of Ukraine hasn't gone as planned. He hadn't anticipated such an aggressive pushback from the Ukrainians. Russia's troops are short on necessary supplies. Russia's troops are suffering significant and massive losses. Russia's economy is suffering because of this invasion. So Putin understands that this war cannot be prolonged indefinitely. He has just a short time to fight in order to be victorious. And so he is ratcheting up the pressure on Ukraine. How? Through threatening, using biological and chemical warfare. He's even threatening to use nuclear weapons because he understands, as his spiritual father does, there's just a short time left to fight. Classic case. This has happened to me so often, I can't even count the times. 
I have presented the gospel to someone one-on-one. And presenting the gospel requires uh, 30 to 45 minutes, often more than that, contingent on someone's questions. And I've been presenting the gospel, and there hasn't been a single interruption. And then at the end of that presentation, I invite this person to pray and commit themselves to Jesus Christ. There's no pressure on my part, not at all. It's very low-key, but I invite them to sign on the bottom line for Jesus. And I've done this thousands of times. And just at that time, when this person is about to respond and say, yes, I want to do that, there's some form of unusual interference. Someone comes to the door. The dog has a barking seizure. The phone rings. Something happens out of the ordinary that could potentially prevent that person at that time from receiving Jesus. People, that is called satanic interference. And it happens because Satan understands that he has just a short time left in order to operate. He doesn't want to lose a single soul. So he steps up his game to stop that from happening. Now, that's the end of the parentheses. Turn back to Nehemiah 6. It's consistent with Satan's modus operandi from our comments, and it's no coincidence that this satanic opposition from Nehemiah's enemies occurred at the exact time when this wall around Jerusalem was almost completed. Nehemiah had almost finished this construction project. And then Satan started pressuring him like never before. He used Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshep to attempt one more time to stop that project. Charles Swindoll has entitled this section, Operation Intimidation. Operation Intimidation. Because Nehemiah's enemies used three basic techniques in an attempt to intimidate him. Beginning in verse 1, from Nehemiah 6, and going through verse 14, Nehemiah describes those three basic intimidation techniques. But there's only enough time for the first one this morning, so we're saving the second and third techniques for next Sunday. First, let me define intimidation. Intimidation is to make timid or afraid, to cause someone to become timid or afraid, to force or deter with threats or violence. To force or deter with threats or violence. Satan tried to use those three men to intimidate Nehemiah into shutting down that construction project. Notice, the first intimidation technique was in the form of a private letter. The first technique was in the form of a private letter. Now it happened when Sambalit, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our many enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung the doors in the gates. Verse 2, that Sambalit and Geshem sent to me, meaning sent Nehemiah a message or a private letter saying, Let us meet together 
among the villages in the plain of Ono. This first technique was more subtle. Symbalat and Geshev, through the means of this message or private letter, had just invited Nehemiah to meet with them at a village located in Ono. This is probably not where John Lennon's widow, Yoko Ono, her name originated, probably no connection at all. Uh, amazing, she's still alive, she's 89. This particular Ono was an actual geographical location about 20 miles from where, Jerem, from where Nehemiah was at Jerusalem. On the surface, this sounds totally harmless. These men have invited Nehemiah to a, quote, peace summit in order to discuss a solution to this incredible tension between them. And on the surface, this sounds like a good thing and something Nehemiah should consider doing. Notice those men in verse 2 even said, let us meet together. That togetherness suggested the idea of cooperation. But Nehemiah was suspicious. He questioned their motives. Notice at the end of this second verse, it reads, but they thought to do me harm. But they, Sembalad and Tobiah and Geshem, thought to do me harm. Nehemiah could read through that invitation to meet. He was discerning, so he was able to see an evil scheme behind that invitation. God sometimes gives some people an additional sense that most people don't have. Whereas normal people have five senses, some people, such as Nehemiah, are given an additional sense we're calling a spidey sense. That is not theological language. We're calling it a spidey sense, and most people can relate to that cultural concept. This spider sense or spidey sense is defined as someone's extraordinary awareness of imminent danger. Someone's extraordinary awareness of imminent danger. It acts as a sixth sense and was first attributed to the comic book superhero Spider-Man. Spider-Man could sense danger before others could foresee it. And Spider-Sense is a real thing. Spiders are very, very sensitive to vibrations so they can sense before they can see. They can sense the presence of another spider or a predator uh, so the spider can avoid it. And that was Nehemiah. Nehemiah had spidey sense. He was no dummy. He was discerning enough to know that these guys didn't have good intentions. For instance, if he were to go to that summit meeting, he could be captured and held hostage himself. He could be ambushed. He could be murdered. Those were realistic possibilities. And that, people, has happened before. Some of us that are older, and in first service, most of us are. <clears throat> Some of us that are older might recognize the name Terry Waite. He is an English humanitarian and author, still alive. In the 1980s, he was the assistant for the Anglican Communion Affairs for the Archbishop Robert Runcie. He was an envoy or represent representative for the Church of England. 
And he had been successful in negotiating for the release of a number of hostages. He actually had. He was a negotiator and he'd been successful in uh, the release of some hostages. And so based on his amazing track record, Waite arrived in Beirut, Lebanon on January 12, 1987. He arrived there in an attempt to negotiate with the Islamic Jihad organization that was holding hostages, including some well-known names. He agreed to meet the Islamic captors because he had been promised safe conduct to visit the hostages who he was told were all in ill health. Instead, though, that Islamic group broke that promise and commitment made to him and took Mr. Waite hostage himself. He was captured. Why? Because Islamists lie. Islamist jihadists do not operate according to our traditional Judeo-Christian moral values, or else jihadists wouldn't volunteer to become jihadists. And still we have people in this present administration and in previous ministrations who have been so naive and foolish enough to believe that the Islamic Republican of Iran negotiates treaties in good faith and can be trusted not to build nuclear warheads. We're fools because we have been and we are at this moment resuming talks and we are being deceived. Terry Waite remained in captivity for 1,763 days. That's just under five years' time. And the first 48 months, he was held in solitary confinement. He was released on November 18, 1991. Terry Waite had the best of intentions, but he had no spidey sense. He needed the discernment that Nehemiah had. Nehemiah smelled trouble. And so he turned down that offer. But he didn't just tell them no. Nehemiah was an intelligent man. And he gave them a legitimate reason for refusing to come to Ono. One author commented on his response. To question their motives outright would only intensify their anger against Nehemiah. Meaning if he were to verbalize his suspicion about them having a wrong motive and born sincere, it would make him look bad, particularly to those persons in Israel who were sympathetic in some sense to Sambalit and Tobiah. Then, Nehemiah always had to face the possibility that they could be, for once, could be sincere. Although Nehemiah couldn't prove his enemy's motives at that moment, he chose a method of response that would eventually demonstrate whether or not those men were sincere. He simply sent messengers to them. Notice verse 3. So I, Nehemiah, sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? 
Now, consider the logic Nehemiah has used in his response to this invitation. His response was, gentlemen, this peace summit is a good idea, but this is a tremendous project that we have been assigned to, and we just cannot afford to stop what we're doing and journey to Ono. If we did that, we would risk this project going unfinished, And that just isn't acceptable. We have to continue to build and build until this wall is finished. Nehemiah was committed to this principle. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Nehemiah's main thing was to rebuild that wall. That was the reason he had been sent to Jerusalem. He was to rebuild that wall and those massive gates and then put them all together. His entire focus was on doing that. And he wasn't going to let those men or anyone else detour him or distract him from completing that project. So Nehemiah selected a particular maneuver in his response that would demonstrate if Sambalat and Tobiah were sincere about this proposed peace meeting. Responding like he did, Nehemiah didn't openly question their motives. His response was logical and reasonable. If Sambalat and Tobiah were sincere about their intentions, wanting to sit down together and fabricate a peace agreement between them, then those men would have appreciated that response. Nehemiah was nearing the completion of that wall. It had been a gigantic project. He couldn't take time off and shut down that project in order to go meet them. So he gave Sambalin and Gresham an opportunity uh, to prove that their motives were sincere. If those men were sincere about this peace summit, it would have been more appropriate for them to offer to come to Nehemiah at Jerusalem instead of Nehemiah and some of his entourage traveling to meet them at Ono. Do we understand that? If those men were sincere about this peace summit, it would have been more appropriate for them to offer to come to Nehemiah at Jerusalem instead of Nehemiah and some of his men traveling to meet them at Ono. Nehemiah's proposal to them was, I can't come to Ono because of my commitments here. And he was hoping that if the peace summit actually mattered to them, if these men's motives were sincere, then these men could come to Jerusalem to meet. But that didn't happen because those men weren't sincere. Nehemiah gave them a legitimate explanation, but it wasn't acceptable. Notice that these men were persistent in using that intimidation technique. Notice verse 4. But they sent me this message four times. And I answered them in the same manner four times. These men continued to send Nehemiah private messages in order to intimidate him into coming to Ono. There were altogether four letters, essentially the same, sent at four different times, one right after another. Each letter said the same thing. Nehemiah, come to Ono. 
Nehemiah, come to Ono. Each time Nehemiah received a letter, he wrote them back and refused that invitation. Sanballat and Tobias said, come to Ono. And Nehemiah said, oh no. No, no, no. Not doing that. Nehemiah remained unintimidated. It would have been a serious mistake if Nehemiah had given in to that intimidation technique because he would have fallen into Satan's trap and his effort to stop that construction project. So Nehemiah didn't give in. Nehemiah stood his ground. Giving in to intimidation can be disastrous. How often are teenage girls intimidated and pressured into a sexual experience before marriage? How often are teenagers intimidated and pressured into vaping or smoking or using alcohol and drugs? It's called peer pressure and fear pressure. It's the same as intimidation. Sometimes we need to be stubborn in the good sense of that word and hold our ground and refuse to evacuate our position at all cost. Sometimes we need to do as Nehemiah did and say, no, I'm not doing that. Go ahead, mock me, intimidate me, shun me, ignore me. I don't care. The answer is still no. As parents and grandparents, we need to raise generations of children, adolescents, and young adults that will learn to stand for something instead of falling for just about anything. John Maxwell is a prolific author and leadership expert. He was a pastor for some time, though, before going into the leadership development basis business. John said that in one of his first congregations, he had a particular member that practiced intimidation. This man brought to each service, this is some time ago, a portable tape recorder and would sit and tape the entire message. Now this was before churches started recording services and uh, this was before the digital age. On Sunday afternoons, this man would replay the sermon and copy it word for form, word for word in manuscript form. That took him hours to do. Then he would take a red pen and mark up the manuscript, underline and circle grammatical errors, and in the margin insert questions or statements about his content. He critiqued it and criticized it up one side and down the other. After he marked it up with red, he then put it in an envelope and mailed it to Pastor John. John would then find that, quote, corrected copy of his sermon on his desk every Tuesday morning. That man did that sort of unsolicited critique for two solid years. People, that's called intimidation. I might add that that particular critic didn't serve in any capacity in that congregation and didn't contribute a single dime to that church's budget. I'm not surprised because people that are busy rowing the boat usually don't have time to rock it. Intimidation. Nehemiah stood his ground. He'd been given a private letter inviting him to Ono for a summit, a strategy summit, peace meeting. It was to be a, quote, conference to discuss 
peace between those opposing parties. But Nehemiah suspected something mischievous and threatening, so he turned down that invitation to meet. He turned it down four consecutive times. He refused to be intimidated. I read about another pastor named John. He was a 75-year-old house church leader in Swato, mainland China. Most people understand that the evangelical church is primarily underground in communist China because of the tyrannical atheistic government there. Through the efforts of an international Bible smuggler named Brother Andrew, some of us have heard of him, Pastor John had received a consignment of some 10,000 Bibles to be distributed to his congregants. I praised God for hours afterwards, he said. I just hugged the Bibles and thanked him for his kindness in allowing us to have so many Bibles at one time. John's role was to store the 100 plus boxes of Bibles and then discreetly pass them on to other distributors and individuals in the region. But he soon realized that wouldn't be possible to do for some time. A member of his house church stopped him on the street and cautioned him to be careful. This Christian brother said, Pastor, have you heard the news? The entire town is buzzing about what happened last night. The civil Civic authorities are furious and determined to trace every Bible and jail every person who handles one. John heard that and didn't let that announcement intimidate him, though. He wasn't afraid because he'd been interrogated and had been in prison before. But he was concerned for his congregation the hundreds and hundreds in his network of house churches. Because of the scale of this operation was so large, the believers could be imprisoned for being recipients of those Bibles. After praying about his dilemma and consulting with a local farmer friend, he decided to wrap up and then bury the entire load of Bibles underneath his friend's barn. Once the uproar had died down, He planned to dig them up and give them out to the Christians. Several months later, the authorities still had not eased up in their search. When Pastor John was finally brought into the police station for questioning, he was surprised to see that his four interrogators were not local men, but were special investigators flown in from Beijing. In other words, the search for these smuggled Bibles was now being conducted at the highest possible level. The officials had decided ahead of time that John was possibly and probably one of the primary organizers in this smuggling operation called Pearl. This entire operation was called Pearl. He was a prominent leader of house churches. The group the Bibles were destined for, and he lived in Satao, the location of the delivery. Since their minds were already made up that he must be guilty, John did not try to convince them otherwise. As the interrogators pressured him for names of others involved in Pearl, he remained silent. I had gone through all of this before during the Chinese Cultural Revolution, he recalled, so I knew how to handle this kind of interrogation. 
Just shut your eyes and pray. Say nothing. Shut your eyes and pray. He refused to be intimidated. His reaction, though, his unwillingness to cooperate, only infuriated the investigators all the more. Acting in desperation, the men resorted to an especially cruel means of torture. Listen carefully, please, to this. Taking John into the prison courtyard, they tied his hands behind his back and made him stand on a wooden box about four feet high and the top less than a foot square. The top of this pulpit is four feet from the floor. So the box would have been that tall and the top that he would stand on would be less than half the size of this top to this pulpit. Imagine that. And his hands are tied. He was made to stand on that teetering box. They placed a noose around his neck and attached the rope to a wooden beam above his head. The authorities said, we have given up on you. So the moment you are swaying a lot or your legs collapse from fatigue, then you will hang yourself. And that is a just penalty for your stubbornness. And then the men left the courtyard. Two police were assigned to watch Pastor John's last moments. John looked down on them from the top of the shaky box. The men hardly glanced at him, instead choosing to play some gambling games. He said, I felt like Christ on the cross. He must have felt the same way when he looked down and saw the soldiers casting lots for his clothes. John then suddenly felt a surge of power in his body. And he started to tell those guards, those policemen, about Jesus. He told them about his life, his death for our sins, and his resurrection. He spoke of the gospel. And because of what Jesus had done, John told them he wasn't afraid of death. Old man, one of the guards said, If I reach 70 and look as unhealthy as you, I wouldn't be afraid of death either. What I am about to read next Sounds unbelievable. It just couldn't have happened. But I promise this isn't fiction. This did happen. Soon the hours, hours standing on that box became actual days. John's body cried out for sleep, but he knew what would happen if he drifted off. His legs developed ferocious cramps, and in shaking them, he nearly lynched himself. As the blood collected in his legs, they swelled to twice their normal size until numbness set in. His only relief was the rain. He stuck out his thickened tongue, his swollen tongue, to gain a few drops of moisture. It also seemed to wash his filthy bodies. Five days passed, six days, then seven days, and still John had not toppled over and died. The word was getting around the prison. No man could survive that long, especially at such an advanced age. He had been standing all that time with no food, almost no water other than some rain, and especially no rest. Ten days passed, then eleven days, 
12 days, John was delirious beyond being able to feel anything. On the 13th day, 13th day, standing on that wooden box, his hands bound behind his back, a noose around his neck, all of a sudden the sky blackened and a huge thunderstorm swept in. As he stood there pelted by the rain, his resistance finally gave out. A sudden flash of lightning and a simultaneous clap of thunder caused him to pitch forward. The noose tightened around his neck. The next thing he knew, John heard himself coughing. He was no longer standing but lying on the ground. His legs had been propped up onto a chair and he could feel the blood flowing back into his upper body and the pain was excruciating. Someone was giving him water, then shaking him shaking him, trying to revive him. Barely able to open his eyes, he realized it was the two policemen. The men shouted, please, please don't die. Please don't die. John managed to clear his brain for a moment. All he could say was, why, why? The men were literally trembling themselves and said, because we want to know you're Jesus. John responded again, but why? They exclaimed, because he saved you. A bolt of lightning cut the rope above your head just as you fell. Don't tell us that was a coincidence. It couldn't be. Those men became Christians on the spot. And that amazing story spread. Many others inside and outside that prison came to Jesus because of John's courage. Not knowing what else to do, the prison officials later just released him. It was 1985 before John was able to dig up the Project Pearl Bibles. Four years after they had been delivered, he dug them up and he distributed them all without any difficulty because he refused. Like Nehemiah, he refused to be intimidated. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for giving us such an incredible example of what we ought to be even in this New Testament age. Help us to stand strong, be stubborn sometimes, refuse to cave in to intimidation. The world wants to intimidate us. I pray that we won't permit that to happen. Thank you again for your book. We learned so much from it. and We're very grateful that we can be here this morning Bless this message to the hearts of these people. And I pray it makes a difference in each and every life. And I pray and I thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.